you're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. It's good to see you guys. Um, If you would, go ahead and open in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to be in the first six verses. Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6. While you're turning to Hebrews 13, I want to mention a couple things. Um, one, week we'll meet at 25% capacity. Um, the city, yeah, the city has passed or amended an ordinance bumping us up to 50%, I think, starting on Monday. So that means our leadership is going to come together on Monday and figure out what does that look like. And, and as I mentioned, if you saw that announcement video, our, our goal and our aim is to get us all back together, okay? So this is just kind of a, a temporary fix for now, but our goal is to come back together. So just be uh, on the lookout for what that looks like next week. Also, we're going to aim on Father's Day Sunday to have a baptism. We already have somebody in our church who's wanting to get baptized. And so if you, um, if you are ready to take a step um, we want to invite you to, uh, to come let us know that you're ready for the waters of baptism, that you're ready to follow the Lord, and we want to get things set up next week. You know, the world is chaotic right now. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of uh, turmoil, if you will, but still the Lord is at work. The Lord is saving people. The Lord is drawing people to himself, and so we want to continue to celebrate that. And so if you would, let me know if you are wanting to take that next step in the waters of baptism. And then just the last thing, um, I mentioned to you, I invited you last week to that Sunday evening meeting that was called Generation of Kings for the, for the men in our church. I didn't host the event. It was hosted by people that we had met. It was an incredible turnout of people, and I just wanted to thank you, Redeemer, for those of you who came out and were a part of that, but also if you weren't a part of that, just supporting and praying Uh, We had a great opportunity to be in the community and start talking about things, and so now it seems like momentum has picked up. There's probably 50 or 60 men in that room, and the leadership who's hosting it thinks that the next time we do something, it it could be a couple hundred people. And so just to think, we have believers and non-believers, black, white, um, all kind of mixed in together, just kind of hearing each other out, but also the aim, at least from one of the leaders, is that... His, his asking is that we make an appeal to the gospel to be the ultimate solution. And so that is just a really beautiful God thing. And so, and that is kind of why, where I got this shirt, you know, let the gospel be the offense, is that we want, yeah, we want racial reconciliation, we want all of these things, and, all, and there's all sorts of solutions and ideas out there, but at the end of the day, there's certain hills that we should not die on, but there's one hill for sure that we must die on, and it is the gospel of Jesus and that is what we agree on as the church. And so, I wear it because it also looks cool. This is the first time in my life I look cool. I got palace behind me with lights and everything. I mean, I'm like a really cool pastor this morning, okay? Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6. I understand I'm really not cool. A love that changed everything is how I want to title this. A love that changed everything. We are in the last chapter of the book of Hebrews, and, and here you start to see, like when you're reading these words, it's a very personal letter. You, you feel as though the author is writing directly to you. That's what a letter does. It's very personal. It's very direct. It's, giving, it's being very specific. But if you recall, when you opened up the book of Hebrews in chapter 1, it wasn't so personal. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to us through the Father's. And in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And then he goes into a thick Christology, meaning the study of Jesus or how Jesus is God and he has come to save sinners. And so that's how the book of Hebrews opens up. It doesn't open up like a traditional letter, like, hey, greetings, I, Paul, greet you, grace and peace. You don't see that sort of greeting. But what I think is interesting about the book of Hebrews and what makes it so beautiful is that it goes from really rich, thick, robust theology in chapter 1 
all the way to chapter 13, where we get the practical outworkings of our theology. And that's what we see in the admonitions of chapter 13. It seems kind of like a running list of, hey, do this, do this, do this, do this. Sometimes it can seem like, what does all of this have to do with anything in the book? But really, what the author is showing here is that here's how our great theology, here's how our great God and everything that he has done hits the streets. Here's how it goes into our homes. Here's how it goes into our marriages. Here's how it affects how we love one another, how we love the stranger. And so the reason I I said, or I'm titling it, A Love That Changed Everything, is because right here in the first verse, in chapter 13, it says, let brotherly love continue. And I got hooked up on that word, continue. Let brotherly love continue. I clung to that word because it indicates a love that is in motion. And it indicates a love that came before, it came before the audience of the book of Hebrews, it came to them, it's working through them, and it will work beyond them. And so this isn't just like, hey, this love began with you, church of Hebrews, now continue it on. No, it's, it's this love began before you, now it's working in you, now it will go on after you. And so this love in motion And that love came from God from all eternity. We know that God is love and that love has come down, right? In love, God sent His own Son, Jesus, to die for sinners, right? Out of love, that motivation of love. And so that love has come to us. It has changed our hearts. We have gone from dead sinners to alive in Christ Jesus, from death to life, from enemies to to friends and allies, from outside the kingdom to inside the kingdom, from not a people to my people. This is what the love of God has done for us, and now it is working through us and ultimately beyond us. And so, with that, I say, we will see love continue in a variety of ways in these first six verses. We'll see it continue in the family. We'll see it continue to the stranger. We will see love continue through suffering. We will see love continue in the honoring of marriage. And we will see love continue to set us free. And so, let's see how love continues in the family. And so in verse 1, let brotherly love continue. This is inward love. That's the idea of brotherly love. This is family love. This is Love that is given to those who are in the household of God. It's very explicit in that way. This isn't a term of endearment, a nicety, if you will. This is, this is real, genuine, relational love where we consider one another actual brothers and sisters in the faith. The same way that we see in Hebrews chapter 2 where Jesus was not ashamed to call us brothers, that is the same sort of brotherly love we are to have with one another, a sibling love. You're my brother, you're my sister, we're family. Meaning, we don't just cohabitate in some sort of religious institution, and we just so happen to believe in the religion of Christianity, and so we just sit in the chairs together. No, this is a living room, and this is where we all reside, and we come together as actual family. We're blood family. The blood of Christ courses through all of our veins. So we are to continue in brotherly love. And this sort of brotherly love is shown throughout Scripture in a variety of ways. Let me give you just three other ways. It's a unifying love. You see that in Psalm 133, when brothers dwell in unity. It's a unifying love. It's a love that is taught by God. You see this in 1 Thessalonians 4. And it is a love that is costly. 1 John 3. No greater love than this than a man would lay down his life for a friend. It is costly. And this love, this brotherly love within the family is to never cease. It's to continue on. 
It has come before us, it's operating in us now, and it's to continue afterward. There's never a stopping point where, hey, you've done enough, go ahead and take, uh, take the rest of the day off from having to love anyone else, or just, you know, hey, go ahead and retire, take the next 30 years not loving anyone in the family. That's not what's happening here. This is a responsibility of the church until we are six feet under. Brotherly love came from Jesus to the sinner. Do not forget where this love came from. And Jesus is not ashamed to call any of you brother or sister. Regardless of your background, regardless of where you're from, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your culture, he is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. And some of us have have identity crises, if you will, in ourselves. We, We feel Uh, lowly we feel ashamed of who we are and sometimes we feel that God is upset or angry with us but I just want to reassure you that Jesus is looking at you right now saying I am not ashamed of you I'm not ashamed to call you brother or sister so come and rise out of that shame but maybe some of us aren't feeling that way And maybe some of us have a hard time looking across the room and really identifying other people as our brothers and sisters. Maybe we do have some shame of calling others in this room brother and sister. Do we see one another as legitimate siblings in the family of God, or do we just see each other as partners of a religious activity? And there's a cost to this. There's a cost. We have to continue in this love. No one gets an out. Love cannot stop, meaning we have to die to self. We have to give of ourselves. We have to engage and we have to enter into the lives of one another to really know each other, to care for one another. And some of us are only good with taking love up to a point and then we're just done. But it has to continue. And church, This love is real, it's tangible, it's felt, it's seen, it's a visible expression of God's love for you. Sometimes we question God, like, why won't you show up? Why won't you do this? Why won't you do that? Here he is, right now, showing his love to you through his church. The church has the spirit of God dwelling in them, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Your love to one another is the love of God to you, tangibly, visibly. If there's somebody in this room or in the 11 o'clock service that you do not love, then my dear friend, you do not know the brotherly love the scriptures are speaking about. You're just tolerating people. You're just dealing with them. And you're just putting on a mask, you're putting on a face, smiling, but really inside you just don't want anything to do with them. Brotherly love is selfless, it's sacrificial, it's communal love, it's union with Christ. I've been explaining to people, I'm going to kind of shift my language a little bit from identity to communion or to union. Not that identity is bad, but union indicates that we are one. What I do affects the body. When I get into God's word, when I pray, it's not just for myself, but it's for the sake of the body. You see how that's a different view? This is for us. God designed us for relationship with Him and for one another. You can't have one without the other. Union. Acts 2, 42-47 is one of the most kind of like standout scriptures and passage that we see where the church comes together. The Holy Spirit falls upon the Jews. They're converted to Christianity. And then we begin to see that Man, they are devoting themselves to the Word of God. They are breaking bread. They are uh, encouraging one another. They have all things in common. Nobody is in need in any way, shape, or form. This is a beautiful picture of the body. All the needs are met. You know that song? They will know we are Christian by our love. The community, the surrounding community in Acts 2 knew they were Christian by the brotherly love that was being expressed to one another. Our 
society is crying out right now. The racial tensions are high. We feel it with a, a lot of talk about the system being broken and the system being ruined. Okay, I get it. I understand. But here's what we need to see. Is that the church, the church is the visible, tangible fix to the problem. It is the solution. It is the redemptive work of Christ. Think about it. Think about what happens when people are reliant upon the system or the government. We need it for money. We need it for food. We need it for health insurance. We need it for all these things. And I'm not excluded from this reality as well. But look what happens when we come into the church. We provide needs. We provide food. We've done that in Redeemer. Hey, your bill's coming up short. Let us help cover that bill. Hey, you have an issue within the church. Let's handle it here. Let's not run to the courts. This is the economy of God. This is a beautiful picture of really what our society is longing for, though they have no idea. But this is what the church is. This is why we cannot be a religious entity, but a family. Because family pulls weight. Family says, I'm not going to let you go hungry. I'm not going to let your baby go without diapers. You're always going to have milk. Look, we're going to help you get bills paid. We're going to work at this together. We're going to trust in the Lord. Your family, this is brotherly love. And so this is where it begins. But our inward love is not to remain inward. It doesn't say insular but it also shows itself outward. The love of God is not a selfish, self-containing love, but it also reaches out. And this is what we see in verse 2. A love that continues to the stranger. Do not neglect to show hospitality to, the stranger, to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. This is the outward love of the believer. We have the inward love of the believer. Now we have the outward love of the believer towards strangers. Strangers is literal here. You don't know them. You don't know them from Adam. But in the first century culture, hospitality was a real thing. Hospitality is a, is a practice of showing kindness and provision to the stranger. When people were passing by or traveling through, hotels weren't exactly one of those things where you wanted to go and frequent it could be very dangerous as well. So the culture developed a culture of hospitality to where you would go and stay with people. And they would house you and they would take care of you and they would protect you along the way. The Gentile community, they practice hospitality under the special protection of Zeus. And they did this because they believed that Zeus would disguise himself as a passerby, and so they wanted to make sure that every stranger, every person who came through, they were hospitable towards because they were doing it as though they were doing it for Zeus. And they also would receive blessing from Zeus as a result of doing it. Very works-based, if you will. The Jewish community practiced hospitality as a virtue modeled after Abraham. And so the Jewish community wanted to be hospitable like Abraham. And the Christian community stepped up the game a little bit. Now we have believers who consist of both Jews and Gentiles who are practicing hospitality, and this takes on a whole new meaning. It's not for the sake of Zeus. It's not for the sake of just virtue to be like Abraham, but now it is about declaring or proclaiming or displaying a kingdom that Jesus has taken sinners and brought them into his own home. And so now the church, consisting of multi-ethnicities, are coming together, recognizing themselves as one family, and showing hospitality to passerbys, expressing the love and the worship of God. And so this is what the church is to do in harmony, in union with brothers and sisters, within brotherly love, then extend that love outward. And this is something that the church is not to neglect. Just like brotherly love that goes inward is to continue on, hospitality to strangers is not to be neglected. I can already tell the tension 
Like in our individualistic society, that's already like, but just hear the scripture today and allow that to convict you. We are not to neglect the stranger. And he says something really strange here. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. It would have been nice in this list of admonitions if the author would have just kind of like given a little bit more of an explanation, but we got to kind of dive into other passages of scripture and try to figure this out a little bit here. The Hebrew audience would have most likely gone to the book of Genesis chapter 19 immediately when Lot, Abraham's nephew, was living in the city of Sodom, two strangers came to him, and these strangers would later be angels. They came to him, and Lot, let me just kind of cut to the chase, Lot brought them into his home and was hospitable towards them. And the city, made up of wicked folks, wicked men, wanted to come and take those two men that Lot has brought into their home and take, them for them, take these two men for themselves. And these two men end up turning out to be angels. And so after a certain amount of time, these angels said, hey, Lot, look, you don't need to worry about this. We got this from here on out. It was kind of like the entertaining fact of the angels here was that they were watching the righteousness of God work itself out, be manifested through Lot as he showed them hospitality. Lot wasn't giving in to the twisted and wicked, sinful things of Sodom. He was standing up for the righteousness of God for two people he didn't even know. And these angels would later destroy Sodom. They didn't need Lot's help. They didn't have to do any of that. They could have just stopped it all right then and there. But they allowed that event to unfold and for the righteousness of God to work itself out through Lot. Hospitality is an expression of gospel. The point of hospitality is not to just be nice or to be kind and just to say please and thank you and have niceties. And it's not even for the sake of having an audience. But it is that hospitality is a lifestyle. It's an ever-continuing act of the grace of God to the world. That's what it is. And hospitality isn't just us showing the world the love of God. It is actually infused into the redemptive plan of God to save sinners. When we were at the, um, the event last week called Generation of Kings, it was the, the men's only event consisting of black and white men and believers and unbelievers. And we were talking about so many things. And I didn't press. Pastor Sage for this, but he likes the attention. Pastor Sage spoke up towards the end and he said he just extended an open invitation to anyone in the room. If any of you ever want to come to my house and hang out, you're welcome to come. You're welcome to come into my house anytime. And and you know what actually backed up that statement anymore, evermore, was that the fact that some people in the room had already been in Sage's house before. I didn't even know that. And so why do I tell you this? This isn't about sage, right? This is about a kingdom. Sage opened the door. Where, whereas the world is building up walls. We all agreed on this reality in that meeting last week that relationships are really key. There's a fear of the unknown. We don't know one another, and so therefore there is fear, and we build up walls, and we protect ourselves. But really what we need to do is say, hey, let's not build up walls. Let's just open up doors and invite in. Think of all your friends or family who are being impacted by everything that is happening in society right now. They are either going to be invited into the living room of the world and experience the hospitality of the world, or they will be invited into the living room of the church and experience the hospitality of the gospel. You have a responsibility to not neglect the stranger in this. 
You know who you need to reach out to and invite into your living room so that you can win them over with the words of God, with the gospel of God, with the hospitality of God, and help show them that they can go from death to life, from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. The world's really loud right now. It's screaming really loud. But we have the answers right before us. And so even in this hostile climate, do not neglect. And I'll say this. When it comes to hospitality, you have to be willing to let go of things. Several years ago, uh, my wife hosted a, uh, I think it was the first year we moved in our house, so like six years ago, what, my wife hosted a, a women's game night, right? Which means I had to go upstairs for the entire night, and I couldn't come downstairs, I couldn't eat any of the good food, I couldn't drink any of the good drinks that were down there, I had to stay away and hunker down. And so what was happening downstairs is there was a ton of ladies in our house, believers, non-believers, all mixed up in the room, and we were just new to our house, and we had, we had no brand new furniture. We were brand new to hardwood floors, and so all of our furniture had like metal legs with no felt on the bottom. And so all these ladies were playing games and really loud and energetic and moving chairs around, and when the night was over, there were scuff marks all over our wood floor throughout the entire house. And this is like brand new stained oak wood floor. The first, the first reaction would be, man, i got to fix all this wood floor. But the second reaction is, you know, these are marks of grace. These are marks of grace. Yeah, I love my home. Yeah, I love the oak wood floors. I love the beauty of it. But I would be willing to scuff up all of my wood floors if it means that more people might know Jesus. We have to be willing to lay down comforts, right? We have to be willing to lay down preferences for the sake of showing the stranger that Jesus is king. Because at the end of the day, at the end of the time, our house will be tested with fire and it will burn up and dissolve into nothing. So church, there's also a risk in opening our mouths when it comes to hospitality. And this is something that I'm going to stand by very strongly. If anybody in our city is going to be offended by anyone in Redeemer, may it be, may it be because we deeply love the city and we so desperately want them to know Jesus. If that's what offends them, then to God be the glory and may the whole city be offended. And that's a hill I want us to be willing to die on. A love that continues now through suffering. A love that continues now through suffering. In verse 3, Another admonition, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. If we jump back to chapter 10, we are reminded that this church is already being thanked for their love and support of those who are being mistreated or are imprisoned, right? This church is already aware that of, of those who are being mistreated and are to continue in doing so. The church is to continue to come alongside those who are imprisoned, who are mistreated with that same family-like love and empathy that we see in the first verse, that brotherly love continued. You see this with the Apostle Paul, who was himself in chains many times over, but he was comforted by those who were close to him. Though he was imprisoned, he was very encouraged. In fact, he was sending out a lot of love and encouragement to those who were not imprisoned. So the church is called then to enter into the suffering as though you were in prison yourself. That's the language here. There are those who are in prison for the faith, those who are just in prison for 
other reasons, we are to enter into that suffering with them as though we were in prison, and we are to enter into that mistreatment with them because we are in the body. And that's the language here, talking about the physical human body, not the church body. You can imagine if somebody gets beat up or punched or spat upon, you can understand because you have a physical body, the sort of pain and affliction and suffering that would come to you as a result. So the church is not to dismiss. We're not to dismiss because we do have brothers in Christ who are in jail or are in prison, who have converted in jail or converted in prison, if you will. They're not in jail or prison because they were persecuted. They're just in jail or prison for other reasons. But they are now our brothers in Christ. And so we are to come alongside them in that, to empathize with them in their suffering, to show them the brotherly love of Christ. We cannot dismiss it. Because the brotherly love says... Brother, sister, endure. Endure in your suffering for the sake of Jesus' kingdom. Pray for your enemy. Pray for your persecutors. Pray that God would open their eyes. Continue to trust that the Lord will provide. And if we are to reach out to strangers who are being mistreated or strangers who are imprisoned, we call them to turn to the Lord in their sufferings. Turn to Him. He will provide salvation. He will provide healing for your weary soul. Do not sit here and try to bank on a judge, a lawyer, a jury to get you out of this situation. You need to bank on your salvation and hope and the one thing that is true and secure and that is faith in Jesus Christ. But understand this. The Lord has suffered for the lowly. He has suffered for the oppressed. Turn to Him and find true freedom. That's how our language is shaped. With permission, I want to tell a little bit about this story. Danny Rost, he's working the in the coffee shop here. If you guys know Danny, we got to baptize him several years back. He was on the streets here living at the mission. And, um, and we got to baptize him. And we got to watch him kind of come off the streets. We got to see, you know, he, he lived with our people. He's worked with our people. He's been discipled by our people. We got to counsel him in marriage. We got to help uh, uh, him and Emily come together. We, we continue on being in family, uh, family together. But one of the really neat things that happened early on is that Danny comes from a rough background. You ever want to know about it? Talk to him. He'll talk to you. But when he came to faith, he still had, he still had things going on from his past. He still had three days of jail time that he had to serve in another county. And the judge said, hey, whenever you're ready to do this, just let me know and we'll make it happen. And he kept delaying it. He kept delaying it. I mean, who wants to just go to jail for a few nights, right? And so he came to our community group. He's part of the Burke community group at the time. And we just, for several weeks and months on end, just kept encouraging him, hey, you need to have this weight lifted off your shoulder. Go to jail. <laughs> and so eventually we worked to that point where he ended up going, and he was, he was very anxious. He was very worried about going to jail, and he went. And here's what was really beautiful about what happened. Here's how we entered into that suffering with him. All of us in the community group wrote him letters. He had three letters a day that he read for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for all three days. And these letters were addressed to him, encouraging him, building him up in Christ, reminding him that this was very temporary, just letting him know that we as his brothers and sisters in Christ have entered into this suffering with him and that this is only a temporary thing. It will soon be gone. And that was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And, and it was probably, I'm going to guess, one of the most enjoyable times Danny has ever had in jail. <laughs> in fact, he actually gave those letters to those who were in jail with him just to say, hey, look how my church has loved me. How are you joining in the sufferings of those around you? 
of those who are being persecuted around the world, of those who are being mistreated? Are you keeping yourself kind of back, standoffish, or are you going in and engaging and willing to enter into the mess of things? A lot of you are feeling the gravity of what has happened the last several months, whether it's COVID or, or government or job loss or racial tensions or, or whatever it is, you are feeling weighty and you are suffering right now and you need to let us know that. And as a church, we need to respond to that, not just be passive about it and just do a quick little 30-second prayer, but enter into that suffering and, and build our brothers and sisters up. And I'll say this as well. One of the beautiful things about last week's conversation in the community is that we got to hear about a lot of hurt and a lot of pain, especially from the black community here in Springfield. Now understand, I'm going to stay within Springfield because this is where we're at right now. And so it forced us to hear a lot of things, to, to understand a lot of things, to, uh, to gain perspective on, on a lot of things, but it now allows us as the church family to enter into relationship with a community that has been hurting and to empathize, and to bring the gospel to bear on those wounds. Look, some in the black community are believers, and they are hurting, and we need to come alongside them, continuing in brotherly love, showing them that we are not different, but we are one in Christ. We are one race, we are one family. We have one Lord, one Savior, and we need to build up and we need to encourage. And some of the black community in Springfield are not followers of Jesus. We need to, we need to show them hospitality. Like the church was to show strangers hospitality, we are to invite and open our door. Some of them are being mistreated and hurt and called awful things. We need to enter into that suffering and show them that Christ has also suffered. We are not to neglect any of this. We have a responsibility. And so that is a love that continues and enters into our sufferings. See, these admonitions, it's hard. You can't really transition from one thing to another because the next thing is a love that continues through marriage. Just kind of a list of things, right? Just bam, 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 bam. And so verse 4, a love that continues through marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Some of you are like, how are you going to tie all of this together to marriage? I really don't know, but we'll figure it out. Marriage is the first covenantal union God put in place so that man would not be alone. God created all things, and he created Adam, and so that Adam would not be alone, he created woman, Eve. And so both of them, image bearers of God, being perfectly compatible, perfect union, covenantal union with one another. And so God... By establishing marriage, this was a first act to humanity showing them that we are to be one like our God is one, if you will. That we are to, as God perfectly loves one another, that we too are to perfectly love one another. And we see that expressed beautifully in marriage. So marriage really is a picture of brotherly love and hospitality wrapped up into one. You have two strangers coming together and now becoming one flesh and showing, hopefully for the rest of their lives, brotherly and sisterly love to one another. Marriage represents the gospel. We see many metaphors in the New Testament of how the Apostle Paul describes the church or describes the gospel. And one of those metaphors is marriage, that husbands are to love their wives like Christ loves the church. Revelation talks about a bridegroom who is waiting for his bride to show up, talking about the church. So we are, the church then, marriage, is a visible display of God's perfect love and our oneness with him 
and the gospel that he provides through his son, Jesus. And so therefore, he's, he's saying then, this marriage should be, should be honored in the church. There should be no defilement, no immorality, no adultery. And really, you can break these sins down into two categories. You have inward sin and you have outward sin. That inward sin of defilement and sexual immorality, this is kind of a twisted sin of brotherly love. You may, you may have a married couple that doesn't divorce or get away from one another, but they defile the marriage bed. They defile their union with one another. They bring in things of the world into the bed, if you will. And then they thus pervert the union that they have with one another because the union that they have with one another is to be a representation of the union that God has with one another in a very non-perverted, holy manner. And then you have the outward sin. This is adultery. This is where a third party is brought in where a husband might leave his wife for another woman or a woman leaves her husband for another man. This is a twisted sin of hospitality, if you will. This is where a stranger comes in and instead of embracing them and showing them the love of Christ, you tend to then go with them and love the world with them. The church is to hold marriage in high honor because marriage is the same institution by which God showed the world, here is how you are like me towards one another. Here's what it means to be in life together. And it is a visual expression of my love for the church. It's a beautiful thing. Look, if a church is lacking and understanding what marriage is, it will lack in understanding holiness. It'll lack in understanding unity. It'll lack in understanding hospitality. It'll lack in understanding brotherly love. Trust me. Marriage is one of the only institutions that is a living relic from the garden pre-fall. You understand that? We can't find the physical location of the garden anywhere. You can speculate. You can't You can't find the trees of the garden. You can't find anything regarding the garden of God in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But here's what we can find every day. A living, breathing institution of marriage that existed in the garden before sin entered in. So we got to be real with each other, church. Who among us is struggling in their marriage? There are unhealthy marriages in this church family. I am sure of it. And you don't have to run from that. Be fearful of that. And so part of the family, part of showing brotherly love to one another is that we embrace that struggle. We embrace that unhealthiness. And we help your marriage become healthy. Marriage in our society and viewed as really a dividing wall between married people and single people. It's, like, it's almost like a cuss word in the church, right? It, it becomes like this contentious thing where we can't hang out with one another because that's the married people and that's the single people. And so we act like strangers. There's a lack of brotherly love that's happening, right? Which is a bunch of dividing walls. And look, I get it though. There's a lot of sin going both ways. I mean, for, for single folks, marriage can be used as a weapon. It can sometimes be used as a weapon against you uh, by the enemy to make you feel like you're just otherly. You, you don't have any value. You don't have any worth because you can't seem to find a spouse. I'll tell you as a married man, if you're single in this room, you are not otherly. You're not a piece of junk. You're not garbage. You're a brother or sister made in the image and the likeness of God. You have value. You have worth. Your identity is not wrapped up in whether or not you've been able to tie the knot. Marriage is held in honor not not because married people are something and single, single people are nothing, but because marriage tells us something about our God. It ultimately has nothing to do with us, but it's 100% about Him. Think about this. Imagine if the elders of Redeemer Church had dishonoring marriages. 
Imagine if we had dishonoring marriages, unhealthy marriages. Imagine our church if we had dishonoring marriages all across the room. How long do you think we would stay in existence as a church? We would implode, wouldn't we? We would be a mess. Consider if we would even exist. And if Redeemer was led and occupied by dishonoring marriages, would it be possible to even have a church that is, that is capable of continuing in brotherly love and expressing hospitality to a stranger? You can't do that. What if instead we helped bolster marriages? I'm talking to single and married people. We help one another bolster marriages instead of separating ourselves from one another. What if we stop being ashamed of honoring marriage because we're afraid what the world will say? If you can imagine the negative outcome of dishonoring marriages, what do you think the positive outcome would be for honorable marriages in the church? How would that be different? Think of how that would impact our brotherly love across the room. How that would impact our union. How that would impact our reaching out to strangers. Think how healthy and vibrant we would be because we are centered on God and His gospel, His kingdom. And so to my single friends, I know it's hard to be around married folks with married problems. Like you come into community group and you're like, I have no idea what it's like to have kids. I eat my own food and I wash my own clothes and my house stays clean. I don't understand what it's like to have kids and someone else mess everything up. I get it, right? And trust me, all the married folks kind of long for that day. We miss that day in some regard if we're just honest. Like, I, I love that I can sweep the floor and pick something up, leave the room and come back and it's still picked up. But that never happens. I clean it, I sweep it, I put it away and I leave the room and I come back and it's twice as messy, right? That's awful. And so I get it. I know we have different struggles, different problems, different contexts. I want you to be encouraged by saying your identity as a human is not wrapped up in your singleness. When I look at you, you're not the single person. You may be single, but that's not who you are. Any more than when you look at me, I'm not the married guy. Right? Brothers, sisters, that's who we are. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus is not ashamed to call us. So let's not be ashamed to call each other that as well. Marriage represents union. And even though you're, you may be single, if you're in Christ, we are united together by His blood. We are one. We're one in Christ regardless of our status, married or single. And so I want to encourage you, if you're single, to go ahead and speak truth. Speak truth into the lives of those who are married. Help married folks keep their marriage honorable. It is hard work. It's miserable at times. And so we do need uplifting and encouragement from everybody in the body, married or unmarried. And so to my married folks, I want to encourage you to speak truth into the lives of your single brothers and sisters in the room, that you desire to have them around, that you see them, that you love them, that you hear them. You're not going to make fun of their problems. You're going to hear them out. You're going to empathize. You're going to join in their suffering with them and care with them through it all. Remind them of their hope and joy and union found in Jesus. And so we see, lastly then, a love that continues to free. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. COVID hit a few months ago and there was panic, there was anxiety, there was worry. People are losing jobs, people are losing money. Now we have racial tensions and issues. Cities are literally on fire. The nation is turning against the government in many places. Businesses are shutting down. It is dystopian novel coming true, right? 
But even in this, we are free. The church that is being written to here is being persecuted, is being oppressed, is being put down, is struggling, struggling. And the author has the audacity to say, look, be free from the love of money. (laughs) And so this is the charge. And why do we need to be free from the love of money? Because here's what we see. The love of money in the sense that your dependency is upon money, your dependency upon surviving is in money and making money, your dependency to put food on the tables depended upon you getting money, and your, your fame, your success, your identity is all wrapped in money. He's saying be free from that because here's what happens. You're not free from money. You're enslaved to money. You will become anxious. You will become worrisome. Your blood pressure will continually rise and constantly wonder you're ever going to be able to make it. Here's what will also happen. You will begin to distrust. God, you said you were going to do this. God, you said you were going to do that. And you begin to distrust God. You begin to distrust one another. And so that brotherly love becomes fractured and broken. You don't even trust strangers at all. You won't even engage. You're going to break yourself up. You're going to become isolated because you can't trust anyone or anything. And being enslaved to money also is this. It breeds greed. And it produces a never satisfied heart. I'm never content. I'm never making enough money. My house isn't big enough. My car isn't nice enough. I'm not living in the best neighborhood yet, but I'm going to get there. Like you're never having enough. You're never satisfied. And so ultimately you see how this replaces God replaces God in so many ways, where he says, look, don't be worried. Don't be anxious. Trust me. I am enough. And so this is what the opposite of being, or the love of money is. It is this, contentment. That's what he says. Be content. Be free from the love of money. Don't be enslaved to money. Don't be enslaved to anxiety, distrust, or greed, but rather be content with what you have. Be satisfied in how the Lord provides. It's the exact opposite of the love of money. You see this fully laid out in Matthew chapter 6, in verses 31 through 33. Jesus talks about how the Father provides for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. He says, if God, if the Father does that, how much more will He provide for you, His children? Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worry in of itself, right? The author of Hebrews says, while it is still called today, don't fret about 12, 24 hours from now. Be here, be now, be content in what the Lord has done. His word is true, and I love it. His word is true. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's quoting the Great Commission here. Before Jesus ascends, Jesus' words are true. He is with you by His Holy Spirit. Jesus ascended. He was then able to send the Holy Spirit out to dwell in believers. And so now we are the living, breathing, walking, talking temples of the living God. The Spirit dwells inside of us, meaning Christ in you, the hope of glory. Again, He's with us. And He will not turn His back on any of us. So then we can confidently say, verse 6, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He cites two Psalms here. In verse 6 and Psalm 56, 4. These Psalms, David, are a call out to God out of his distress. And the Lord answers him to set him free. And this is so perfect. Because this Christian audience here in the book of Hebrews is a distressed, mistreated, and even imprisoned and worn out body of believers. They are called to cry out to God and hear what God has to say in His answer. And the answer is this, the Lord is a helper and a provider. This is why He can say in chapter 12, lift your drooping hands, church. 
cling to Christ ultimately. And ultimately, that sets the soul free. This freedom in these Psalms is the same as Hebrews 12. This is citing from Psalm 56. The Lord has disciplined me severely. That's what David says. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. The church thought they were being punished, remember? But the author's saying, no, no, no. You're not being punished. You're being disciplined. The Lord loves you. David has been saying this in the Psalms. The Lord is allowing suffering but that suffering is producing a righteous endurance and ultimately a glory that is life-giving. God is not giving His people over to death. He has given His Son, Jesus, over to death. And by the power of God, He has overcome the grave. And that overcoming power is now ours by faith through Jesus Christ. So let us speak that confidently. That's what we can say confidently. He's our helper, not fear. What can man do to me? And sometimes the church is making man big and God small. And here the author is saying, God is big, man is small. He's your helper. The government's not going to help you, right? The, the system is not going to help you. The world is not going to help you. The Lord is going to help you. The Lord is your sustainer. Man can hurt you. They can kill you. But fear rather the one who can send both soul and body into hell. And that is God. Vengeance is the Lord's. And I understand We all want justice now in some ways, and I'm speaking more generally here, not in regards to the racial issue here. We all want justice now in some ways when somebody wrongs us in some way. We get frustrated, we get tense, it causes us stress, strain, anxiety, worry in life. But what we have to understand is that the Lord is going to deal with this, and you have to trust that. So church, understand, understand that God uses you, He uses you to care for the family. We're talking about being free from the love of money and and the Lord providing and being content in all these things. God is using you in that way. He uses me in that way. He uses you to care for family. He uses you to care for the stranger. And then God uses the church to care for you. It's not always just from me to you, but sometimes it's from you to me. God uses the church to also then care for the community. Look, So then, church, practically, continue to give financially to the church for the sake of the mission, for the sake of serving one another, and for the sake of reaching out. Look, when COVID happened, when COVID happened, we reached out to all of our community group leaders We gave each of them, said, hey, here's a thousand bucks. Anybody in your group needs help, just give it to them. Y'all know this, but I'm going to just speak it truth. We had $10,000 sitting on the account just saying, spend it for whoever needs anything. We were not going to allow any of you to go hungry. We weren't going to allow any of you to go without buying diapers. We wanted to care for you. We wanted to love on you. But you know what happened? Is that within the pockets of those community groups, you guys came around and you pulled out your own money, your own resources to help out. We barely even had to touch any of that money, but it was there, it was ready to go. This is what we want to do with the money. It's not, we are free, I would say as a church, from the love of money. It's for Him, it's for His kingdom to show brotherly love, to show kindness, hospitality to the stranger. And so, not only give, continue to give, but continue to receive. Please, I know it's hard to receive sometimes, and sometimes we don't want to receive out of pride or ego, but have some humility. If somebody wants to give you something, maybe they're being led by the Spirit to do so, just receive it and be thankful. 
Because it's ultimately God working through them. Paul tells us that in Ephesians, that the Father works over us, in us, and through us. This is how the Father takes care of His people. We need to be willing to give. We need to be willing to receive. And we need to continue to voice our needs. If you think that you're a constant problem and you're too needy, you have to understand that that there's no request too big for our God. We can't know how to serve you, how to care for you if you're not saying anything. So as Pastor Nathan has said several times over, do not rob us the joy of serving you. Because it really is a joy. And let's be content. We want the better job. We all want the better house. We all want the better car. We all want... You know, we all have personal preferences. I have them as well. And it's easy to not be content, but we need to just remain content in the Lord. His provision for us is providing our needs, not always our wants. And if you are struggling, I want to ask you, run away. Don't go hiding. Don't go isolating yourself. Instead of running away, run to the church family. There's help here. There's love here. And look, we need to, kind of as the last thing here, we need to cling to the Word of God. He says here, you know, For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then he cites the Psalms as well. He cites three different scriptures. He cites three different parts where it is God has said. Those three words has said are some of the most freeing words you can say to your soul and to one another. We're hearing a lot of what the world has to say. Thinks the solution is. And those words can cause us great sorrow, great depression, great anxiety, and great worry. But God is saying, I have said. And so we need to bend our ear towards Him so that we are fearing Him and we are not fearing man. When we begin to just give our ears only to the world, we then become irrational. We become irrational, angry towards one another. We ultimately become angry towards God. We begin to believe the subtle lies of the enemy that God's word is not enough. So we spend more time in words that are not God's words than we do in God's words. And I'll tell you this. The world does not have the ultimate answer to our problems. Yes, there are solutions that you don't have to pick up a Bible with per se, but what I'm getting at is our heart posture and our heart motivation must be centered on God's words and promises. If not, then then what are we anchored to? If it's not God's word, then what are we anchored to? And trust me, sometimes if y'all been fishing, you throw an anchor in the water, not all the time does the anchor hold. You got to find the right place, maybe the right tree to get that anchor onto so that your boat doesn't drift. And it's the same in life when it comes to the world. If we're not anchored to Christ, we're going to start drifting and we're going to keep throwing the anchor in the water, trying to find other words, other things, other, other solutions, hoping that our anchor will grab and keep us still, but it won't. We will always drift. And have you noticed... In all the conversations I've had, conversations, nobody in the world has consulted God about the matters at hand. Nobody on a national front, national stage, from president to the governors to local officials has says, what does God think about this? God feel about what's going on. We have to remember that God is the one who's most offended. Our sin towards one another is first and foremost a sin towards God and Him. 
God is the most offended, and he has provided a real answer, but it's found in him, in Christ. It's not found in the world. So cling then, church, to the word of God, to his promises. God's word, it created the world, put all things into being. It sustains the world. It has outlived generations. Generations and generations have swept by. Kingdoms have come and gone. Problems have risen and fallen. Books have been written and burned, but you look at the Word of God and it has been here from the beginning. And as the author says in Hebrews, in these last days, God has spoken to us from His Son. He has also said the Word of God is living and active. So God's Word is bound up in Jesus Christ. He is the Word made flesh. His words are true and they are reliable. His words are not just ink on paper, but actively changing people, changing you and me, giving us real hope and real solutions, causing us to move towards one another with brotherly love, to show strangers hospitality. God's Word gives us contentment, peace, healing in turbulent and in an anxious world. So the Word reminds us of the love of God. The love that flows from the cross is flowing through our veins. The love of God took us from strangers to family, from suffering alone to suffering together, from defiled to honorable, from anxious to content, from fear of man to fear of God. The love of God has moved toward us But now the question is, will the love of God move through us and beyond? Or are we just going to put the foot down and have it stop with us? As I've preached earlier this year, we we have grown. We have grown as a church. We've matured. We have seen us mature in our theology as a church, our understanding of the Bible. We have a long way to go, but we are maturing. And that's good. But now, like the book of Hebrews we have to move our understanding of God into action among one another, in our city, among those who are suffering, in our marriages, and in our trust of the Lord. Hebrews 1 is theology. Hebrews 13 is the practice of our theology. And so that's where we are today. Let's put our theology in motion. As Pastor Nathan has said, let's take it on a walk around the block. Be motivated today to let the love of Christ continue in us all for the sake of our King, for the sake of our church, for the sake of our community, and for the sake of the nations.